We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Nora Loretto, author of Spin Doctors. Half of the podcast, Sandy and Nora, talk politics. Hello. Hello. Nora, the truth is dead. Conservative Party edition. Also on today's show, the truth is dead. Liberal Party edition. <laughs> Both sides-ism. Sometimes it's the only sides there is. Uh, welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. It's the sphere of politics. This episode is brought to everybody by Sammy Bayevsky. George Anderson, Evan Purser, Matthew Webb, Adam Helfand Green, Brandon Armstrong, Carrie Hamilton, and Meg. I'm Meg, a Euchre enthusiast living in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because it's made me think completely differently about politics, current events, and the news in general since I started listening when there were only like three episodes of the original Canada Land show. Unlike most people in the world, I actually love Jesse and not even in a love to hate him way. His shit-disturbing personality is the best, and because of it, I wake up every Thursday super excited to listen to him and his guests talk shit about the news on Shortcuts. Nora, last week, Pierre Poiliev called his very first press conference as the Conservative Party's new leader, and it did not go well. Did you happen to see that video? I did see that video, and I think, let's be clear, I think it went well for him and his supporters. Maybe so. Let's uh, remind people what that sounded like. <laughs> Even further, the more things, co- the more he spends, the more things cost. It is just inflation. Their homes, and to buy a home in the very first place. I'll put my hand up. The reason that, the, look. Yeah. So I mean, we we have we we have uh, basically a, a liberal heckler who snuck in here today to. Well, I'm the chief Are you going to let you me make my mistake? From the guy who actually reported yeah. first on the prime minister breaking the law. Yeah. Are you going to we let me make like my statement? Ask a question. Say yes. I've never. I've actually never seen you heckling the prime I've minister. Before. Ask Minister never Barry. Back heckling in the, day. the prime minister. Look. Bottom line is this. I'm going to take some questions at the end of this statement. Yes, I'm taking. I'll be taking two questions at the very end. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. As a bit of a mess for people who actually watch the video as well, what you see is Poliev trying to make the speech, and there's this guy in the crowd, this hostile, arrogant guy, has got this kind of prickish smirk on his face, and he won't let Pierre Poliev begin. He's interrupting him. It just looks like an asshole. Won't even let him start to talk, and then they get into this kind of back and forth. This hits social media where we learn that the jackass in question is actually a journalist who was supposed to be covering Pierre Poiliev's speech, not demonstrating against it. There is anger and outrage online, and the consensus is that David Aiken, the journalist in question, was way out of line, and David Aiken himself ends up acknowledging that he was out of line and apologizing for his rudeness in a tweet. Nora, what I want to do today is for you and I to tell everybody... What really happened? (laughs) Okay. It's not what you see in that video. That doesn't tell the half of it. So what really happened 
is that Pierre Polyev called a press conference and announced that he would not be taking any questions. Okay. Now I'm not going to say that he's the first politician. I think Stephen Harper was one, you know, who really limited and 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 made it standardized to have no question press events, and it's it's not simply a conservative issue as well. I mean Trudeau arguably is little better than Harper when it comes to press availability. But here is Polyev, newly minted conservative party leader, setting the new standard for how it's going to be. He talks, reporters listen, broadcast it, write it down, put it in the newspaper. And David Aiken basically said, hell no, and wouldn't let Polyev begin and said, why aren't you taking questions? Like, that's how he begins. Why aren't you taking questions? And then they, they get into this back and forth and the outcome of it, like Polyev is unable to make his speech. Like he really is blocked. And the only way he's able to get Aiken to shut up is by agreeing to take questions. Mm. So I will defend David Aiken even if he won't defend himself. I think that's maybe exactly what reporters should be doing mm -hmm. in a case like this. Other people have said the reporter shouldn't have even showed up to cover him. And I think that there was once like a press walkout on Harper, like like the amount of solidarity that it would take for every reporter covering this to just like not show up. I don't know if that's possible. And I think it's a tough position because if your job is, there is a, a level of responsibility of like, here's the new conservative leader. It's my job to report on what he says, to abdicate that responsibility. Like what, what, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more that happened afterwards that I also want to tell people about. But let me start there, Nora. Like what do you think is – the right thing for the parliamentary press gallery or reporters who are assigned to cover the conservative leader, what should they do when Polyev is making very clear that this is the level of access and accountability he's going to be offering? Yeah, it's a really difficult question because the norms of how journalism operates in this country do not really allow for this kind of creativity, I would say. And you can see a lot of journalists and commentators like, publicly scratching their heads with trying to deal with the issue here, like what is actually happening and how can we navigate this? I think that to start, Aiken walked into a trap. He walked into a trap and the trap was laid very easily by Polyev and Aiken took the bait. The conservatives are so good at this. They're so good at making people look unreasonable. They're so good at releasing tape that only shows a part of the story. And if you are a left-wing activist in this country, you know that very, very well. You may have even been the victim of one of these kinds of situations. And they've been practicing this for years and years and years. And are so good at it that what they create on the first day of Polly Ever's first press conference is Aiken walking right into that trap and then being forced to apologize, which I agree with you. I don't think that he needed to do. So there's the whole question of strategy that had journalists been paying attention to how these things happen for many, many years, I don't think so many of them would be surprised. As someone who's very often caught up by these conservative traps, either because they try to set them or because I walk into them, you can spot them really easily. And so knowing that, people have to be very, very careful. So it's like Aiken tries to change the strategy. He does change the strategy through kind of chirping at at Polly Ever and why are you not taking questions and this kind of thing. Of course, there's a power imbalance because you can't really hear Aiken. Polly Ever's standing at the front of the room. He's got the lights on him. He looks calm. Aiken doesn't sound calm. Again, very, very standard stuff. But is that going to be the way that you take down the conservatives? 
I don't think so. I think that that's more of a strategy that you can get away with with the liberals because they are not as practiced. And that would make uh, someone like Justin Trudeau, like when Trudeau is publicly challenged, he he comes across as a complete, like a petulant child. Polly Ever is a petulant child. <laughs> and so he's very practiced at hiding that. And I think with the conservatives, the strategy has to be different. But you asked me what that strategy should be. And the answer, I think, is... <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't exactly know. I think that journalists have to state this stuff clearly. It's pretty tricky. It is tricky. But but one thing that is possible is that, I mean, Aiken should start articles by saying we were refused access to asking questions. Like they refused to allow us to ask questions. They refused to allow us to challenge the leader of the opposition. And I suspect that that isn't something that would cross Aiken's mind because that crosses again, outside of the, the bounds of decorum in Canada, that in your reporting, you wouldn't insert something like that. You would say you, you wouldn't mention it at all. You would just report as if things were normal. And I think actually that is really where the problem is. All right. I want to get into more detail about exactly what trap he walked into. But I need to note that I think you walked into one yourself saying that, you know, j- journalists need to strategize. That's not the way you take the conservatives down. I don't know that journalists I, need to strategize I didn't say take to take them the down. conservatives down. I didn't, did I say take them down? Take them on. That's not how you take the... Okay, so let's clarify here because that (laughs) is exactly the conservative trap that we're all conspiring to take the conservatives down. Right. Criticizing, questioning, holding them to the account, that's the job. Yes. And the idea that journalists need to strategize against politicians at all puts us in a very tricky situation. And everyone is very quick to talk about, well, he was right in theory, but he was too rude or he should have done this. Like, I've yet to hear anybody come forth with like, here's what he should have done that actually makes sense. Right. But let's actually talk about what you were alluding to before, which is the trap. And I think this is actually more interesting than what Aiken did is what the conservatives did and what Polyev himself did. I won't act surprised, but we need to take this apart piece by piece, because this is the new guy that we got to deal with. So we do need a strategy. I think actually it is the role of journalists to strategize how to take on politicians, because if you're not being strategic in your criticism of them, in your questioning of them, then you will not criticize or question them in any effective way. We're probably closer on the same page than not here. Yeah. I mean, I I think we're in a new age here and I think there's no other thing to point to, but this is the post-Trump rule book. Okay. We have to figure out and navigate how we are increasingly being drawn into politics and used as a tool. And that's, I think, a lot of what we're going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I want to point out is that in that exchange, Poiliev calls David Aiken. He goes, "Ah, looks like we got a liberal heckler who, who, who snuck in here as if he doesn't know who David Aiken is. Pierre Poiliev knows exactly who David Aiken is. David Aiken is the chief political correspondent for Global News. And the idea that he's a liberal heckler, he was a talking head on Fox News North, on Sun News Network, okay? He has (laughs) absolutely broken scandals about Trudeau, and he's been just as prickish and aggressive against Trudeau. Reasonable people can disagree about David Aiken. Some people think he's a respected journalist. You know who thinks, or at least thought he was a respected journalist? Pierre Poiliev. According to David Aiken, a respected journalist. That was with reference to David Aiken actually criticizing Bill Morneau, right? So when David Aiken has news that hurts the Trudeau government, he's a respected journalist. And when he has confrontations for the conservative leader, he's a liberal heckler who snuck in. Mm-hmm. And maybe Polyev could say he was joking. I don't think that Polyev's followers would take that as a joke. It is absolutely part of his narrative that the press are liberals and are there to dismantle him and are there to fight against him. So, you know, like that, that's, it's just a thing he said that isn't true, that he knew wasn't true. But it was only the first thing. It was only the first lie, really, that came out of his camp. The second thing was Pierre Polyev's press secretary, 
who followed up Anthony Koch mm. or Koch. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. He tweeted that David Aiken told him to tell Pierre Polyev to, quote, go fuck himself. Okay, and later he erupted in a yelling spasm to try to prevent Mr. Polyev from even beginning his press conference. Okay, so that, that's what Polyev's press secretary says. It is not true. And I think it's actually a very purposeful lie. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even call it a spin. What, what actually happened, and this, this was witnessed, was that David Aiken told Polyev's press secretary, tell Polyev I'm not his fucking stenographer. Okay, he, he swore, but that's a very different sentiment than Polyev can go fuck himself. If I have to cover Polyev, my message to him is he can go fuck himself, then I'm not fit to cover him. I'm obviously against him. But this is a much more specific swear. I'm not his fucking stenographer. I will be asking questions. And it's the kind of politics, mm-hmm. like once somebody swears, once a journalist swears, it's sort of like fair game to lie about how he swore because now he's on his back heels. He's like, well, I did use the F word, but I didn't say what you like, you know, Aiken can't really equivocate or, or correct it. He's just got to apologize. You know, that was the play there, but it's a lie. It's, it's a very different thing. And then that was followed up by a third lie. Conservative Party members got an email from Pierre Polyev, or whoever wrote it and signed it, Pierre Polyev, but we, we can attribute this to Polyev because he attributed it to himself. And what he told people was that he needs money. He needs conservative members to send money to get around the media. Okay? He says, they hurled obscenities. They, they hurled obscenities and started shouting at me. Was it a left-wing protester or a liberal MP or staffer? No, it was a member of the media. And he needs money to get around the media. That's such an interesting thing to say. Every politician goes around the media, right? They are perfectly capable of posting their own videos, of posting their own tweets. They don't need us anymore to get their message across. I don't know what money from his supporters. Like, there's a level of of dishonesty there that he needs money to go around us. But more pressing than that to me was... What are you actually saying there? Like, I know it's an old tune that, you know, the media is corrupt, the media is liberal, the media is paid for by Trudeau. Mm. But what are you actually saying to your base there? My plan is to not be questioned. I'm going to be going around the media. So that's all well and good if we can conceive of the media as a bunch of David Akins and everybody is convinced that they're in the tank for Trudeau. But who does he answer to? Who will he be questioned by? Like, is there some other category of journalist? Like, is, is he establishing that he'll he'll then actually have a real press conference with, I don't know, Rebel News or the True North initially? Like, what he's really putting forth is, like, mm-hmm. I, I will not answer anyone's questions. I'm just going to speak directly to you. And you're going to not only accept that, you're going to pay me. You're going to fund me to do that. He's suggesting a, a regime in which politicians boast about simply not being accountable to the press. And then what are we? Like, we only exist as a political prop at that point for him to fundraise on. Like, we actually, our our actual purpose, he doesn't need us to convey his message, and he won't submit to us as a check on his messaging. It is a post-accountability information regime that he is bragging about, fundraising about. Like, this is how it's going to be. Oh, my God. Jesse, you sound like you've, like, just discovered Chomsky for the first time and you're, like, 18 and realizing how the world actually works. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's the meanest thing you've ever said to me. Uh, uh, Yeah, like, no, this is, sorry, but this is how it works. Like, no politician wants to be questioned. Trudeau has his own ways to avoid accountability. And the conservatives know very well that they 
only stand to lose when they participate in questioning by mainstream journalists. Like they only stand to lose. And so they're not forced to participate in this dance anymore. And so they're like, fuck it, we're out, right? And you could say, well, then who's going to hold them to account? Like, have journalists been holding the conservatives to account? Really? Have they been holding liberals to account? Really? In the last five years, 10 years? Like, we are not in 1998 anymore. We're certainly not in 1988 anymore. There are very few ways that journalists can properly hold a politician to account. And my God, we just witnessed that on overdrive throughout the pandemic. And so looking at this and saying, whoa, oh, my God, we're, we're even entering a new era where Polly Ever is refusing to speak to journalists. It's just like everything about what Polly Ever does is curated, is thought through and is deliberate. And so we can look at it the way that you're looking at it. Yes. Or, or and or, because I think it's it's useful. The, the perspective that you've raised is useful. I don't disagree with it. But we can also look at, at it as a statement of modern politics in Canada. And we can lament that they're not the way that they should be or the way that they have been or whatever. But what we're actually dealing with here is what the fuck do you do? When the fourth estate or the fifth estate, whatever the fuck the media is, I guess the fifth estate, (laughs) uh, is not able to play its role in liberal democracy anymore. What do we do? Well, then actually we're looking at something that is much more profound and it isn't just Polly Ever and it does involve all of the main parties, which is a decline of liberal democracy. That's what we're dealing with right now. And so we can have that conversation. But as the liberal democracy declines, Obviously, journalism crumbles with it because journalism is not capable of actually challenging these people. Because let us not forget that most journalism in this country is done in the service of corporate profits. And Polyever operates in the service of corporate profits. And so none of the old kind of nostalgic reasons for how the press is supposed to operate can continue to exist within that contradiction because the contradiction is becoming far, far, far too powerful, too big to ignore, too big to operate and strategize around. So you sound like somebody who picked up Chomsky 20 years ago, but never put it down. (laughs) I am dealing with this on a, a very different level than you. I except that the journalism operates within some larger framework of, you know, uh, whatever you call it, late capitalism. Capitalism. It's capitalism. <laughs> right. But I also know that everybody at that press conference really does want to hold him to account. And they really do want to hold Trudeau to account. Yes, of course. They really do. Their inability to do so over the last five years is a relative, I guess it's a matter of opinion. I'll probably agree with you in a grand sense that we've never had less resource to hold them to account. And we've never had less institutional will from our news organizations to do so. What's really changed is the relationship. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. It's not about being conservative liberal. Nobody wants more accountability or to be more criticized or to have to answer more tough questions. Anybody will limit their liability and their availability as much as they are permitted to. And it's a negotiation of standards. Whether you sneak out after question, whether you sneak out the back door, whether you allow yourself to be scrummed, whether you take follow-up questions. So what is needed is more aggression, more David Aiken-like tactics, okay? Polyev couldn't even speak because some asshole was interrupting him. How did he get him to shut up? By taking questions. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with what David Aiken did. And I think that any time a politician 
announces, and, and Trudeau did this recently. He had a press event. Press were not allowed to ask questions. Somebody even threatened the press that the, the, the police would be called in if they, if they spoke up. And then the PMO had to deny that it was them, uh, you know, which, which it might not have been, but the press was warned about that. This happens on both sides. I think as a standard thing, you don't let the event even begin if it's a no question event. And every reporter should be on board with that. I don't think Aiken should have gotten to the whole back and forth. I think it should just be, why aren't you taking questions? Will you take questions? Why aren't you taking, and you just don't let them start. Mm-hmm. And I think that some people are un- uncomfortable with that level of press activism. But if you believe in what we're there to do, we're not just there to record it. We're not fucking stenographers. As a baseline, practical thing, we'll deal with capitalism later, Nora. <laughs> Let's just like not let them have their press event if they're not taking questions. I would be shocked if management in the newsrooms, the employers of all the people in that room, agreed to refuse to cover press conferences under those conditions. Yeah, I think it's got to come from the rank and file. I think we just have to <laughs> refuse. Yeah. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Nora, let's do Duly Noted. I want to duly note a story from CBC Manitoba. The headline was a quote. This is not my downtown Winnipeg. Frustration grows with drug use. People living in bus shelters. Mm-hmm. Did you see this? I did, yes. It goes on to explain that a fed up 73 year old resident is frustrated that her downtown is riddled with annoying homeless people lying down in bus shelters, taking up space. It describes this, this horrible scene shattered glass, garbage, and a needle litter, a dilapidated downtown bus shelter on Portage Avenue. 
Nearby, besides the now shuttered Hudson's Bay store, someone is lying on a bench inside a bus shelter while Winnipeg transit riders wait outside. At the end of the article, there is a message that we should also take homeless people into consideration because uh, they are people too. We're reminded. I guess I feel like we should be past the point where, I don't know, we could expect an article about homeless people to include conversations or quotes from homeless people. That's like point one to duly note. Mm. Just the like really obnoxious assertion of like ownership of the city. This is not my downtown. Who really owns the city is what is being asserted in this story. And by all means, let's cover the drug epidemic. Let's cover homelessness. But from this perspective of like the real owners of Winnipeg versus the sort of like faceless horde of disgusting homeless people. And I got to say it, like if we are talking about homelessness in downtown Winnipeg, then the subtext of this article, we are likely talking about a high percentage of the people we're talking about are indigenous people. And that is sort of in the like in the unspoken margins of this article and certainly not quoted or represented. So it's just something you'd hope that we would see done better by now. Duly noted. Nora, what is a news story that you think people should be more aware of? So quite a while ago, one of the last times I was on Canada Land, Jesse, you asked me when I was going to stop tracking deaths in residential facilities related to COVID. We were talking about the rise of Omicron. It had just kind of hit the scene. And I said I'd stop doing it when the deaths stopped, right? And and at that point, you know, there were still public health restrictions. There was still like a facade of trying to control the virus. And I think, you know, both of us, a lot of people had a lot of optimism that things would finally get better, right? So that didn't happen. <laughs> and I want to duly note the fact that yesterday, Canada reached 45,000 dead from COVID, COVID-related illness, And I'm noting that because it doesn't seem like anywhere in the mainstream media that has been noted. And I'm still collecting this data. We've reached almost 30,000 deaths within residential care. The deaths within those facilities have slowed significantly, but the data also just doesn't exist. And so the only good picture we have is Quebec. And if people want to see Quebec data kind of used as a projection for the rest of Canada, you should look at the research of Tara Moriarty. She's doing really excellent work on this. But I mean, I wrote a freaking book about how the pandemic would be erased from the public discussion. And yet I am still stunned that it's been erased from the public discussion. So I want to duly note 45,000 Canadians at least have died with excess deaths. It's probably closer to 100,000. And not only is that sad, but that has major implications on society, on our social services, on people's mental health. And it is nowhere in the discussion. We heard much more about Justin Trudeau picking the absolute worst song in the world to sing in a, in a, in a hotel lounge than we did about these deaths this week. So I want to duly note that. Duly noted. One more thing to duly note here. Uh, I know this is a story that you missed, Nora, because it hasn't been published yet. You familiar with a magazine called Adbusters? <laughs> Am I? <laughs> yes. Yeah. There's some young people in our office who don't know what Adbusters. Adbusters, of course, is, uh, you know, it was the Bible of the Vancouver-based magazine. It was the anti-capitalist, cutting-edge, radical publication. I think it had a heyday in the 90s doing these very cutting, satirical, 
ads that were almost, almost like Mad Magazine for grown-up radicals against capitalism and, and, and consumer culture. Then they had kind of a resurgence when they basically sparked the Occupy Wall Street movement 11 years ago. Still going. Adbusters still exist. Like, they, you don't hear them much anymore. But we heard from somebody at Adbusters just this week. Somebody who works there was really furious about what they're about to publish, and they wanted Canada Land to know about it. Nora, it seems that Adbusters is going anti-abortion. <laughs> what? <laughs> Didn't see that coming. There's a weird streak in environmental movements that are anti-abortion, so I wish I could say that I'm shocked by that, but I'm absolutely not. Like a little bit anti-abortion? I'll just tell you what I know. Okay. Uh, the email said, I work at Adbusters. The reason you haven't heard from Adbusters in the last 11 years is because their editor-in-chief, Callie Lassen, who is now 80 years old, still thinks his idea of revolution is relevant. He insisted on publishing this spread. And this is what was attached. This is a two-page, highly designed spread with this big, like, centerfold picture of a crowd of people with taking selfies. And in big block letters, it reads, fuck all you highly educated metropolitan elites. And then in smaller text, reproductive rights, reproductive freedom, reproductive health care, reproductive services, medical procedure, involuntary servitude, a cluster of undifferentiated cells, medical waste, all in square quotes. And then beneath that, of course every woman has the right to do whatever she likes with her own body. Of course she has the right to decide to have a baby or not. But there is a sacred weight to the decisive moment of abortion that is absolutely not reflected in the clinical language so many lefties throw around. This is big, and they are afraid of it. If after Roe versus Wade we had proceeded with humility and deference instead of just high-fiving in the victory shoot, I don't know where the victory shoot is, but I'll continue, we wouldn't be in the pickle we're in now. We lost the spiritual high ground. Our lack of compassion has turned a lot of people off. I'm for abortion with empathy. Signed, KL. Wow. And this Adbusters employee who's dropping a dime on this says, I had vocal arguments with him about reproductive rights during which he told me, you don't know how to play jazz. <laughs> okay. Amazing. So, yeah, it's infuriating. I wanted to work somewhere cool and revolutionary. But now that contrarian leaning has turned into being opposed to just about everyone. And this is from the issue that is going to be released on September 27th. What do we say about this? Well, as I say, I wish I would, could say I'm surprised. I, I like the the pickle and the victory shoot imagery talking about reproductive justice. I think that's pretty clever. And I'm very shocked that Kelly Lassen's in his 80s. I can't believe how time uh, marches on. But he's been a very – controversial is not a really great word, but like he said a lot of really not great stuff for a long time. So this shouldn't really surprise people who – have paid attention to adbusters, um, maybe not since Occupy, but certainly in the period from like, I don't know, 2005 until Occupy, when adbusters started to kind of like disappear off of the off of the left wing scene. It's a good reminder for left wing people that they need to be engaged in struggle. Uh, they need to be touching grass as much as possible. And that the second they become misanthropic curmudgeons that don't turn that into a political orientation because it's not one. So duly noted. Okay, we have talked about sort of the post-truth conservative party. I need to talk to you about what is happening with the Liberal Party and its supporters, its supporters online, its supporters in, in the media. And specifically, I want to talk about a hashtag that has been going gangbusters. People like to dismiss, like, this has been huge day after day after day. Millions of people 
have been reading tweets with the hashtag Trudeau must go, but there are thousands, tens of thousands of these tweets and they've been read by millions of people. And it's gotten intense coverage in one bubble and complete blackout ignorance in the other. If you missed it, which you might have, what you would miss was these tweets follow a pretty rigid format. Somebody would tweet something biographical about themselves. Uh, I'm a 59-year-old third-generation Calgarian who's a traditional wife and mother for over 37 years. I'm 45, born in Calgary, grew up in Montreal. I work in the financial side. It's sort of like everybody's just sort of displaying, I'm normal by terms that I consider. I, I drink milk. I have children. I breathe air, whatever. You know, and there's often like a, a picture of them just like being a human. Like, look at me. I'm a human. I exist. And then they finish the tweet in the same way. They say, according to Justin Trudeau, I'm a racist, misogynistic extremist with unacceptable views. Trudeau must go. So here I am. I'm a normal Canadian, but according to our prime minister, I am racist, misogynistic, and an extremist, and I can't be tolerated. And, you know, I was a bit mocking there, but some of these tweets are, are quite effective, especially en masse. It's just like person after person putting up their hand and saying, hey, I'm a human being. I fucking exist. And our prime minister is calling me a bunch of really slanderous names. He's got to go. Now, I think that there are ways that we can engage, that critics can engage with these tweets, right? Be like, well, the way that you're describing normalcy is problematic. Or you could like get factual with it and be like, well, you know, did the prime minister actually say this? That was what I thought. And he actually kind of did. Let's hear what Trudeau said a year ago. There is a small fringe element in this country that is angry, that doesn't believe in science, that is lashing out with racist, misogynistic attacks. But Canadians, the vast majority of Canadians, are not represented by them. He said it again, Nora, a little bit more exhaustively in French on Nouveau in an interview hosted by celebrity Julie Snyder just days before the last election. Mais aussi des gens qui sont farouchement opposés à la vaccination. Qui sont extrémistes. Qui croient pas dans la science, qui sont souvent misogynes, qui souvent racistes aussi. C'est un, 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 un petit groupe, mais qui prend de la place. To translate what you just heard, not that I can, but I've had some help here. What he said was, speaking about people who are fiercely opposed to vaccination, there are people who are fiercely opposed to vaccination. They don't believe in science. They are often misogynistic, often racist. So that's where Canadians got this notion that the prime minister said, being opposed to vaccination equals being often misogynistic, often racist. Hmm. And then like saying, it's a small group, but they take up space. Like it's a problem, they take up space. I can understand if you have any kind of an issue with vaccination, you would read that as he's talking about me. He's saying that because I have an issue with vaccination, I'm a misogynist, I'm a racist. And I can understand people being like, how am I going to be lectured on my racism from a motherfucker who appeared in blackface three times and who's like my prime minister? So I get where that's coming from. I think there's lots of ways to engage with that. And I think that maybe their opposition to vaccination, which I do not agree with, maybe we don't care about what they have to say, or maybe we want to debate with them about that, or maybe we want to quibble with them about whether he called them misogynistic or racist. There are a lot of ways to engage with that. But what I want to talk about, Nora, is the way in which this was actually engaged with by liberal party people and liberal party supporters and liberal supporting media. Did you catch any of this as it was playing out, by the way? 
Almost none, honestly. I have a pretty good mental filter to not dive into these worlds. And because I know how these hashtag campaigns work, like of the, let's say, 5,000 individuals that may have participated in this, like probably only 200 of them are real. <laughs> like, let's be serious. I'm just like, not my thing. I'm going to pass on this one. <laughs> well, ding, ding, ding. You actually uh, hit this one in trying oh, to pass see, on it. Of course. <laughs> the way in which this was engaged with was not to actually like deal with these people, but to deny that they actually exist. And that is something that we heard from Jerry Butts. I love Jerry Butts's Twitter account because he was the principal secretary to Trudeau. And you get to hear what you know is like he's just become very mouthy mm. online. So you actually get to hear the talking points directly from somebody as opposed to it being filtered through various proxies or, you know, otherwise. So he basically was like, you're not real. The people who are saying this don't exist. This is a bot campaign. Mm. And listeners should know, actually, that this guy, Dean Blundell, has Almost like the loudmouth, shock jock, white guy, angry website of the left, uh, or wait, at least of, of the, the liberal left. party. <laughs> Let me take that back. 17-year-old Nora cries. <laughs> yeah. Of the, like, Trudeau-supporting internet. There is this a growing part of the Canadian internet, which is like angry, reactionary Trudeau supporters. So he took on this campaign and his response was also, I'm not going to talk to you people because you don't exist. And his reasoning, it's an interesting website, DeanBundell.com, because I don't think he pretends to be a journalist. He's just like an opinion guy. And he writes, everybody should know that this is fake. I've got a friend who works in cybersecurity who sent this to me this morning when I asked her for her take. And then he posts this like typo strewn screenshot where his friend who works in cybersecurity assures him that it's absolutely paid. That's her opinion. Hmm. And the reason why she knows it was paid is because a usual Canadian trend is 20,000 impressions, but this one's getting into the millions. There's no methodology. There's a way that people can actually do research into whether something is fake or real. I want to really talk about this way in which we try to discredit things by saying this is paid Russian bot campaign. Absolutely, there are Russian bots spreading that message. Absolutely, there were fake tweets in that campaign. We looked into it and we found some. Mm -hmm. But the way that Russian propaganda and Russian bots work is they latch on to anything that is divisive, that human beings in this country or other countries introduce into social media. And if it's divisive and makes people angry, they boost it. Okay, so the tactic of saying this doesn't need to be argued with or even regarded as a message from actual citizens because it's all fake Russian bots is an absurd way to engage. It's like during the Freedom Convoy protest when people were like, this isn't real. It's foreign funded. This is like 50s Red Scare shit. Mm. I just want to say to everyone who bristled when you compared this to the Red Scare, I hear you. you that was a weird comparison. <laughs> you don't think there's a lot of like anti-Russia fear mongering that we have to root out Russian assets because they walk amongst us? You don't think that's oh, going I on? Oh, I see. I'm sorry. I thought that you were comparing uh, the criticism of these individuals as being a kind of Red Scare. So like a reverse or a bizarro Red Scare. So thanks for that <laughs> clarification. Meanwhile, we have plentiful data data that like, yeah, a lot of people do hate Trudeau. So this Leger opinion panel, it was a survey of 1,500 Canadians. Uh, it was conducted, Post Media sponsored this, make of that what you will. But what it found was a solid majority of Canadians, 61% believe that Trudeau has divided the nation. He is a very divisive leader. He fought the last election on dividing the country very purposely. It's about a calculation that like people don't 
necessarily think that he's so cute anymore. We're angrier at conservatives. We're angrier at anti-vaxxers than we are delighted and charmed by him, as evidenced by the singing and the piano thing. Like, you know, the Mm -hmm. thrill is gone. And he has made a successful calculation that if he divides the country, he'll get the bigger slice. And that worked in the last election. And that's the playbook for the next election. So that's the regime we're in. And it's post-truth on both sides. It's not about having a conversation with people who like, I don't know, maybe they are frustrated because inflation is making them poor and income inequality is making them poor. And the opioid crisis, which the government is doing very little about, has devastated their families and community. Maybe they actually have reasons to be frustrated, but but we don't have to talk to them because they don't exist. That's where we're at right now. Yeah, you're mixing up a bunch of stuff here. And you got the right guest on to talk about it because I certainly know what it looks like when you are like in the middle of a, of a hashtag kind of thing, right? A hashtag swarm. I had said that maybe of the 5,000 tweets, there's 200 real people. And I think that that's a really interesting question is when you have these massive campaigns, what is the ratio between bots and real people? Because that then allows you to see what we are talking about in terms of real support. But then the real support doesn't really matter because it looks like there's real support because we've done such a bad job in this country explaining, like doing internet literacy to say, you know, actually most of these people do not exist. These are not widely held views. And we're talking specifically here, not just Trudeau must go, but like Trudeau must go because of the vaccine stuff, right? This is also something that I think that we cannot mix up. Is there a fringe group of Canadians who are absolutely racist and absolutely misogynistic and who've latched onto the vaccine issue who hate Trudeau? Absolutely. But that is not the same thing as popular sentiment towards or against the prime minister. So, of course, Gerald Butts is going to say this is all fake and we can ignore this. Of course, that's his literal job. Like, as like, I mean, maybe not paid anymore, but his loyalty to the prime minister would suggest that that's going to be their message. But for those of us who are outside of that and who are interested in seeing what is happening here and what does this indicate in terms of the support or the opposition that might exist among the population for Trudeau, we have to be very, very careful about what we are teasing out and what we are kind of not teasing out, what we're leaving in this big pile of kind of of sledge. So these campaigns are successful because there are so many people who are frustrated with Trudeau. I mean, I'm more frustrated with Trudeau than fucking probably most people in this country. And anyone with kind of a third of a political brain understands that the next election is very likely not going to be with Trudeau running for the Liberal Party. It'll There'll probably be some sort of switch within the party to make sure that they can maintain their support. The conservatives or far right or whoever would be behind Trudeau must go campaign. They know that and they're tapping into popular sentiment to allow people to be confused in such a way that then mixes in the far right criticism with the overall general criticism of a population that is frustrated with their leadership. And we can't make the same mistake because if we do make the same mistake, then we provide cover for that far kind of right extreme position while then also not really talking about those issues that are driving average people to being distrustful or disliking the prime minister. And then of course, it's important to mention that this is all happening on Twitter, where the partisans for the prime minister are like nuclear level irritating and make make you want to like just send the entire party into the sea, right? They're sort of the worst. They are the worst. I think where we might disagree is the idea that what we saw happen in Ottawa was primarily an anti-vaccination protest. I think that you might be surprised by how many of those people were vaccinated. I see this and I've taken a lot of flack for describing it this way, but I saw that as a generalized 
frustration protest, a generalized mm. backlash by people who were just feeling the pinch and didn't really have anywhere else. You know, who else was taking their frustration or giving a voice to their concerns that, you know, as you've been documenting for a long time, the pandemic hurt some people more than others. And I feel like the NDP was completely ineffectual at capitalizing on that frustration and anger. And that's where it all ended up. No, 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 no. I don't think that's right. What I use to kind of come up with my analysis is very basic. Uh, the individuals in my life who were there and like I, I know a lot of people, I got a lot of cousins, I, I you know. The individuals in my life who were at that protest and who were supporting it all fit the profile. <laughs> like they were all anti-vax. Like they were all they're all individuals who would be happy to espouse racism and misogyny if it meant that they were making their points. I think, sure, collapsing everyone into these amalgams is perhaps not useful if we're going to try to understand and explain it's things. It's super toxic. I don't think people understand just how poorly that plays when somebody is like, like, there's a lot of gray in this. There's a lot of people who are vaccinated and followed all the rules and did their part. You can't get mad at them for like exposing everybody else, but they'll say things that are kind of like vaccine skeptical. If you actually are like, why is this person so angry and frustrated? And there are fundamental legitimate reasons why people are frustrated right now. And all of this stuff is just a cover for not dealing with it. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about what happens when we stop actually treating people like their interests fucking matter. What you're concerned about, though, is that they represent a larger swath of the population who is fed up with Trudeau, who's fed up with how the pandemic was managed, who are vaccinated, who do believe in science. And that's an interesting population for us to talk about. But we do not need to talk about the Freedom Convoy to have a conversation about that broader population that I personally wrote a fucking book for, <laughs> right? To try and did, give did them sense to this. I, I have to keep I saying this, a, right? I have to, the, you wrote a book. I, it's one of these... I hate having to keep saying it, but it's like when we're talking about criticisms of the government and criticisms of how the pandemic was managed, those criticisms get shut out. We're not allowed to make left wing criticisms. And so we are left with, well, everybody who was it was at the Freedom Convoy was misogynistic and the racist. And they also have this broader support within society. And so we can't just call everyone racist and misogynistic. It's like. Those movements. You're emerging things that I think we need to think about a, a lot more carefully. There is no question that there are actual, literal Nazis and racists who we have been documenting for years here as they've been laundering their ideas and trying to get into the mainstream. But to try to describe every one of them as a member of that core of nutjobs is a stretch that is so toxic to our conversation, our discourse. It's simply not so. The pushback on everything that you've been railing against in terms of the inequity in society during this pandemic, that was not given voice to it. It did not hit the streets. It did not hit the capital from the left. It didn't hit the streets from any one of our parties. It was left to nutjobs to launder their campaign by organizing that thing. And that is the problem. And Polyev very savvily found a way to insert himself into it. And he stole all of that populist, much of it legitimate frustration for his party, a party that arguably offers the least in terms of equity to all of those people. But we just, we got to get to a different place than just banging these people on the head with the racism stick. Like it's, it's just dividing and alienating us from actually being able to talk to each other anymore. Nora, that's shortcuts. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Always a pleasure. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed about anything you heard today at jesse at CanadaLand.com, and I read what you send. 
Nora, where can people find you? You can find me in your head. I'm just always there. Just living there. Take just living space, there. Rent free. <laughs> and online. I mean, noraloretto.ca, my absolutely horrific website. So thank you for also reminding me of that. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pruhl. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we're doing, on this show, on this network, we need your help to keep doing it. You can receive ad-free versions of our podcasts by hitting the link in your show notes or going to canadaland.com slash join and supporting us directly. We rely on your support. 